All right, let's this morning open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew 22. We'll be starting in verse 41 this morning. So Matthew 22, starting in verse 41, is where we're going to be. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. For the life of me, I do not understand the infatuation with the royal family. I do not understand it. You know what? 244 years ago, this country made a statement that we no longer care about the royal family. All right? And it pains me in my deeply patriotic American soul (laughs) to see a nation in infatuation with a family across a pond. What's even of further significance and interest to me is that the royal family doesn't even have that much importance in their own country. They're just figureheads. They have no real power or authority. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on British politics by any means, but as far as I understand it, the power in England rests in the House of Commons and with the Prime Minister, not with the Queen or King or whomever is on the quote-unquote throne in England. That title is given to them, King or Queen or Prince or whoever they are, but they have no real authority. There's no power in that like there used to be. Now it's all vested in the House of Commons and the Prime Minister. Our passage this morning, Jesus is going to have a conversation with the Pharisees about the royal lineage of the Messiah. And for the Pharisees, it doesn't go very well. But I think what it shows us is quite a bit, not only about the Pharisees, but actually about ourselves in the process. So let's Look at our passage this morning, Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. (laughs) That's funny. Let's pray over this text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that through the preaching of your word, our hearts would be open, that we may receive the word that you've given to us, truly, that our hearts by it may be changed and conformed, that we may grow in faithfulness to your word, and that we may repent of any sins that would stand between us and you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a while since we've been through the entire book of Matthew, all right? We've been going through the book of Matthew for a couple years now, but it's been some time since I've just sort of reviewed, even briefly, 
the book as a whole. Now, I want you to understand when I do this. I'm going to do this very briefly, but I want you to understand when I do this that there's a purpose for us thinking about the structure of the book as a whole. Every book in the Bible has a certain structure. And your goal as a Bible reader is to uncover the structure, to figure out what is sort of the table of contents of that particular book. And there's a reason for that. Whether you pick up a book of fiction or nonfiction on, in your leisure that you read on the beach, it's helpful to look at the table of contents, to look at the author, to know where the author's coming from, so that you can anticipate where he's going. But it also, in the Bible in particular, especially in the Gospels, it helps make sense of some of these stories that Matthew or Mark or Luke or John tell us. Because you understand that there's a host of stories that they left out. And there's some they choose to include. All of them are true and they tell you about Jesus, but why do they include these and not include others? Why did they exclude some of these, but chose to include the ones that they told us? Understanding the structure helps, under, helps you understand each individual passage along the way. So let's retrace Matthew's steps for just a second. First three and a half chapters of the book of Matthew, he introduces us to a king. His name is Jesus, he tells us. He presents lots of things, but he's the son of Abraham, son of David. He is king. He is the real, true Israel is born. He retraces Israel's death. All that happens in the first three and a half chapters of the book of Matthew. He introduces us to a king. What does a king bring with him? A kingdom, right? So, after the first three and a half chapters, starting in chapter 4, Jesus then comes from chapters 4 to 7, and he introduces us to the kingdom that he's bringing. And not only does he introduce us to the kingdom, but he introduces us to the people that are included in his kingdom. That's why at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, he begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, and he says, poor in spirit, those who mourn, various other people, because those are the kinds of people that are included in his kingdom. His kingdom, it seems, is an upside-down kingdom as we perceive it. It's not like the world. It's quite different than the world. In fact, it's very much the opposite of the world. So this king in chapters 4 to 7 brings a kingdom, and he introduces us to it. But then in chapters 8 to 10, he shows us by demonstration of some powerful miracles, nine in fact, in chapters 8 and 9, that this kingdom actually has a real world impact. The people that follow this kingdom will be changed. And I don't just mean changed spiritually, I mean also changed physically. What Jesus is going to usher in with his kingdom is healing. Demons will be cast out. Sin will be eradicated. And people are welcomed in that are sinners and prostitutes and people that are of random, very nefarious backgrounds. He shows us that. It has a real-world impact on sinners, on people like you and me in our real lives. And so then, in chapters 11 to 13... People are reacting to this king. Okay, what do we think about the kingdom, the king that we've been introduced to, the kingdom that we've been introduced to, 
the impact that the kingdom has had, what do we really think about that? Do we think that this Jesus is truly the Messiah? And we see varying mixed reactions on that. In, in some places, we see the poor and the people that are in desperate need of a Savior receiving Him with open, open arms and saying, yes, this guy right here, he is the Messiah. Look at what he's doing. And then we have some people like the Pharisees and Sadducees that are rejecting Him out of hand. No, this guy can't be the one. And then we have some people with mixed reactions, even John the Baptist, who is in prison going, are you the one or should we expect another? So there's reactions. But then the people that have said, yes, he is the Messiah, in chapters 14 to 18, Jesus gives some clarity on what it means to actually follow him. So from 14 to 18, he's clarifying discipleship for us. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Do we know? What does it mean? What does the kingdom of heaven actually mean? What does it look like? What should we expect? So he tells them everything from what it's going to look like in the end of the age to what it looks like in the meantime. It starts off as a mustard seed and it grows and spreads to become the biggest plant in the garden. So people are understanding what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven and what it means to follow Jesus. So think about this for just a second. Here is a king bringing a kingdom taking from the kingdom of mankind citizens, pulling them into his kingdom by faith in him. What do you think the reaction is going to be to the kingdom of the world as they see citizens of their kingdom going away? Well, they're not going to like it. Imagine for just a second that a country comes over here and starts stealing citizens into their country. And so they're saying, you can come over to our country and be, um, you know, whatever country citizens, and we'll give you this, that, and the other. And they start leaving in droves. Do you think the people that collect taxes would be happy about that? you think the people that want submission would be really happy about that? Absolutely they would. There would be a response. And so, from chapters 19 on through the end of the book, we're going to see the response that takes place from the kingdom of mankind. So a king of the Jews has been introduced at the very beginning of the book, but what do we, and what do we see when this king is introduced at the very beginning of the book? We see a negative response from the kingdom of the Jews. Look at this. All the way back at the beginning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Pay very close attention. Remember the Magi have come... They've come from afar, and they're coming to worship, and they tell, they go to Jerusalem, right? They go to the capital city, and they tell the king there, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. Where is he? He's been born, king of the Jews. Where is he? This is Herod's reaction. Listen to this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. What? Wait. That's got to be a typo, doesn't it? All Jerusalem with him? Who's in Jerusalem? It's the leadership of the Jews. They're disturbed as Herod is disturbed that one has been born king of the Jews. The very people that are supposed to celebrate the fact that their king has finally been born, the Messiah that they've been looking for, he's, he's born, he's here. And they're disturbed with Herod? 
That doesn't make any sense. They're supposed to be enthusiastic about the fact that this person has been born to save them from their sins. But it seems that Jesus is not going to be received very kindly because these people represent the kingdom of man. They don't represent the kingdom of God. So by the time we get to chapter 19, which is the culmination of the book that Matthew's been building towards this whole time, there is an ideological war that has been brewing this whole time that's now coming to a head. And every passage in chapter 19 is in one way or another attacking brick by brick every single aspect of Jewish culture and society. That's why the last few weeks I've really wanted you to see in the parables that Jesus has given that he is attacking the Jewish leadership. They acknowledge God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They acknowledge God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. So he gave them three parables. And basically, the end of that three, those three parables, if I could sum it up, is you're not in the kingdom of heaven. That's basically what he tells them by the end of those three parables. Three parables, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. So then, how do the Pharisees and the Sadducees respond? Well, they didn't really like that, as you might imagine. So what do they do in response? They challenge him with three questions. And those questions are meant to trap him. They're meant to show the people that hold him right now as a prophet that he's really nothing. He's insignificant. He doesn't really know anything. Because if we can undermine that, then people who think they want to be citizens in his kingdom will defect. They won't be. They'll stop. And they'll stay belonging to us but it doesn't really work. They don't trap him. In fact, he traps them. So after today's passage, I want to give you a glimpse into the future of what Jesus is about to do. After today's passage, all of chapter 23 is condemning the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish leadership. 23, chapter 23 is, Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Seven times he's going to say, woe to you. Basically, you are going to hell. That's essentially what he's telling them in chapter 23. Then in chapter 24, he's going to not only tear down the scribes and Pharisees, which he did in 23, now he's going to show that the temple too is going to be destroyed. The whole kingdom of the Jews is going to be torn asunder. It's all going to come collapsing. So, 23, condemned. Seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. 24, condemnation of the temple. And the second half of 24 is going to be preparing his children, citizens of his kingdom, for what it's going to be like once the kingdom of the Jews collapses all the way until the end of the age when Christ is going to return eventually. How are you to prepare yourself? How are you to be ready for that day? So the passage that we're in is really a bridge. It's kind of the culminating point of Matthew's gospel. It's not the climax, that's Jesus' death and resurrection. It's that point right before the peak. Where you get to your highest point, you finally see the peak. It's that point where you realize what kind of journey you're on. 
Matthew's been building to this point this entire time where all of it, from 23 on, is going to make sense. So after three failed attempts by the Sanhedrin, remember that's the, like the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, it's mostly made up of Sadducees, but some scribes and Pharisees as well. It's Jesus' turn to ask a question. Now, this question is going to expose so much, and frankly, I think it's the clincher. It's the point where everything else flows. It's the point where all the suffering of Christ and all of that is going to uh, make sense, I think. So, in this passage, there's two points that Jesus is making by his question. And I want you to see both points. And they're very simple points, but I want you to see both points that he's making along the way. The first point that he's making is that the Christ, the Christ, is king. And the Pharisees are going to admit this, but the Christ is king. Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. It's a softball question. It's a very easy question. This, this question is relatively simple. Whose son is the Christ going to be? Now remember that the term Christ, notice that in the point, it's the Christ. The term Christ is the same as saying Messiah. It's the same thing. The Christ, the Messiah. So it, his, it's not his last name. It's not Jesus Christ. Like he doesn't sign Jesus Christ on his checks. Jesus, the Christ, you might say. He's the Messiah. It's his, it's his title. And so he asked them, whose son is the Messiah going to be? And you can almost hear in their response a little bit of trepidation. Uh, the son of David. Like, what's the catch? Where are you going to get us? But they answer correctly. This is the right answer. He's the son of David. Now understand what this means that they're agreeing to. They're agreeing, they're identifying the Messiah as the rightful heir to the throne in Israel. Who's currently on the throne in Israel? Well, technically Rome is. But who has the power over religious life in Israel? Well, they do. But they're recognizing and they're admitting that the Christ is the Son of David, so He would have the authority over religious life. They've identified the Christ as the king following in the succession of David. But remember, since the beginning of the book, Matthew has been making this point to us. He has been telling us that this is who the Christ is. All the way back in the very first verse in the entire book. Listen to what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the first verse in the entire book of Matthew. And the Pharisees have just acknowledged Matthew's point. It's basically like him asking, do you agree with Matthew? And they say, well, we agree on that point, that the Christ is the son of David. So unlike many of the biblical books, or many even just books that you would pick up off the shelf, you have to study them, you have to analyze them, you have to really think about them, you have to look at all the little subtext that they're saying, all the clues that they're giving you to figure out what the purpose is of the book. Not Matthew. He just tells you right out of the gate that this is what he's doing. He tells you that he, is go he wants to convince you that this central figure, 
in his book, this Jesus, he is the son of David, and he is the rightful heir to the throne in Israel. He, he's just out there with his main point. He tells you that in the first... This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Now, that's not as big a deal to us as probably it should be. I want you to think about this for just a second. Since Adam, since Adam, Jews have taken copious records of genealogies. Remember, those are the passages in the Bible that you skim past because you can't pronounce the names. Right? I'm there with you. All right? We read them and we're like, I don't even know how to, those letters shouldn't go together. Right? I don't know how to pronounce them. So, the Jews, though, have found it worth it to record all of that genealogy. And it's actually very important in the biblical books that they do so. And that we understand what they're doing with those genealogies. Nearly always, they're coming down to a central figure. So one of the first genealogies you get in the book of Genesis comes to Noah. And then the second book, uh, book of genealogies you get in the book of Genesis comes to Abraham and so on and so forth. They begin to trace this line. And you notice that some people take more prominence than others in the genealogies. As an example, Noah and Abraham, they take more prominence in those genealogies. And there's a reason for that. Because the rest of the book of Genesis is tracking down the genealogy, the seed that's going to be produced. Think back with me all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. First few pages, everybody's already sinned. God is now standing in front of them. He lines them all up, Adam, Eve, the serpent. He starts with the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. That's the beginning of the book of Genesis and the whole rest of the book is tracking down the genealogies of everyone to figure out where that seed is going to come from. In fact... The whole rest of the Old Testament is tracking down that seed. Trying to figure out who that person is. So they take copious records. So we know who that seed really is. And so the rest of the Old Testament is God kind of playing the dad at Christmas time, or it, it may be the dad, it's the dad in our, in our family. Uh, Andrea always teases me because when I get a Christmas present for somebody, and especially the kids or her or something like that, and I just know that they're really going to like it, I might get that present on December 1st, and I guarantee you I'm going to walk in after coming back from the store, and I'm going to say, do you want to do Christmas early? I got your Christmas present. I can't wait. Like, I am brimming with eager anticipation to just sh show her or the kids what I've purchased for them. And it, and it changed. Obviously, when I was a kid, I really wanted to get. And now, when you're an adult, you just really want to give because you want to see the look on their face when you get it. And so, God is sort of a rough analogy for God playing this sort of eager dad in the Old Testament, show, waiting to show his children what he's bringing into the world in Christ. 
Now, I know in the Old Testament there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of, there's a lot of sins that he's dealing with and a lot of punishment that he's dealing with with Israel, but really under, under guiding all of that is this eager anticipation on, for the day that's going to be revealed when God delivers them from their sins by bringing Christ into the world, and he can't wait to show them this. And so in Genesis chapter 12, he tells all of the Jews, he's going to come from the line of Abraham. And then in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's going to come from the line of David. And then in all the prophets, there's even proclamations of judgment. And after all of that, remember how the judgments, how all of the prophets really conclude? There's a day coming. And this is what it's going to look like. It's sprinkled throughout Isaiah. It's in Zechariah. It's all over the place. All over the Old Testament is this eager anticipation. This is what the day of the Lord is going to look like. And you need to rejoice you need to get excited about it. The Messiah is coming, and this is the line from which He's coming. But now I want you to think about the importance of the Old Testament in the life of a Jew. It's the foundation of their entire society. All their laws are created from this Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. Their societal structures, their leadership, it's all built off the Old Testament. Every single thing about their lifestyle, they study it every night, they talk about it every week, it's on their lips constantly. Literally, it is scrawled on the doorposts of their homes. It is the foundation of everything. It's their history book. Everything they know about where they came from comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the center of Jewish culture and life. And that book that is at the center of their life is constantly telling them that the serpent crusher is coming and that he's going to be from the line of David. So Matthew, telling us at the very beginning of his book, is basically his way of saying the guy that we have been looking for for more than 2,000 years has come. And it seems that the Pharisees are willing to acknowledge that, at least in part. Yeah, he'll be from the line of David. Presumably, they even know Jesus is from the line of David. So potentially, he's a candidate. They're at least, in part, I'll give them some credit, willing to recognize that fact. I say that because in chapter 12, the Pharisees, remember, they go to Jesus and they question why he's plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day? They, that's harvesting. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath, they say. And so they, they say, well, you know, why, are you, why are you plucking heads of grain? And do you remember Jesus' response to them? <laughs> he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Just a few chapters later, the Pharisees actually send a delegation from Jerusalem to talk to Jesus, right? They get there with their delegation, and they, they talk to him about washing his hands before he eats. Why don't you wash your hands before they eat? So they've been following this guy for some time. They, they know who he is. They know how he responds to their questions. They know 
who he thinks he is. Now, they want to out him as a fraud and ignore him altogether and ostracize him from society, sure. But they understand who he thinks he is. And they understand who the crowds around him think he is. They've known him for the better part of three years, so I suspect that they know he's even talking about himself here, which they're trepidatiously, it seems, willing to concede he's of the line of David. We know that. So then Jesus moves in for the checkmate with this question by making the point, the second point, that the Christ is Lord. He's king, yes, but he is also Lord. Look at verse 43. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. It's funny, every time you read it. So Jesus references there in verse 44, if you look at verse 44, he references uh, a, a verse in the Psalms, and Psalm 110.1 is where that, that comes from in verse 44. And that psalm is a psalm of David. And so David is speaking in the passage. And it's obviously the very first verse, and he, he says, uh, in the original, he says, Yahweh that is the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is Adonai, it's a term of respect, of superiority, so Yahweh, God the Father, we would call that, uh, says to my Lord, my Adonai, my boss, if you will, my, my Lord, um, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool. So, so this passage has always been interpreted up to even up to Jesus' day here, as a reference to the Messiah. Everyone reading Psalm 110 would say, this is David talking about the Messiah. Why do we know that? Well, because David is king at the time that he writes this, and he is able to say that he has the Lord, Yahweh, and his Lord. There's another person in there that he's calling Lord. Well, who would the king of Israel call the Lord. Well, this must be David's prophecy concerning the Messiah to come for whom God is going to make his enemies a footstool. So for David, whose enemies are the same as God's enemies, he's basically saying God's going to make Israel's enemies, my enemies, a footstool, and he's going to do it for my Lord. All right? So then Jesus' question is that if the Messiah is the son of David, how is it that David also calls him Lord? He's his son? How is he also his Lord? What is it that Jesus wants the Pharisees to acknowledge here? He wants them to acknowledge that the Messiah is not only king, but he is the Lord of the kingdom of heaven. That he determines who's in and who's out. Think about the parables he's just given, and he said they're out. He wants them to admit that he is the Lord of the kingdom of heaven. He's king because he's the son of David, but he's also Lord of the kingdom of heaven, as David rightly calls out in Psalm 110. 
that Yahweh is going to make the enemies of Jesus his footstool for the benefit of Jesus. And Jesus has just identified the Pharisees as his enemies. Well, that's troublesome, as you can imagine, for the Pharisees. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that the Pharisees know full well the answer to this question. This is not the first time they've ever considered Psalm 110, verse 1, and known what it was about. Their silence is not that they can't answer, it's that they don't want to. But here's what you need to understand. That he is Lord is also the point that Matthew has been making since the very beginning. We read Matthew 1.1 earlier, but if you read the conclusion of that little genealogy there in verse 17, he says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to who? The Christ, 14 generations. So he's identifying the culmination of this genealogy, which is Jesus Christ, is Jesus the Christ. He is the one to whom this is all building. Jesus is not only king, he is also Lord. And Matthew aims to make that point to every person reading his gospel from the very beginning. He's out there with that. This person that I have described to you, Matthew says, Jesus is not only of the line of David, but he is also the Christ who was to come. He is the Messiah. And following that, we hear a tale of his birth. It's not normal. His birth wasn't normal. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and Joseph is told he isn't to, to divorce her because this is an unusual pregnancy. It says in Matthew 1.20, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's the angel explaining that to Joseph. And we've seen that he truly is bringing about the kingdom of God. Remember the copious miracles in chapters 8 and 9. We've seen over and over again play out even beyond that. Remember him saying in 12 verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. In 12 verse 8, for the Son of man, of man is Lord of the Sabbath. In 1242, something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew has been providing us and proving to us since the beginning evidence that this Jesus is not just a king, he is also Lord. He is God. He's the heir to the throne, but He's also worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our submission. And it is on this point that the Pharisees fall silent. It's that that they can't admit. Again, this, is, this isn't the big climax. That's the death and resurrection. But this is that point where you reach that big peak right before the biggest peak, where you can see where all of this now is leading, where they're going to try to kill him. But this is why Matthew is zeroing in on this. It's precisely for chapter 23, what we get to next week, where he's going to condemn the Pharisees one passage right after another. You are going to hell. Why? Because you do not recognize Jesus as not only king, but also Lord. 
as Lord of the kingdom of heaven. You think you are. It's not because they're unwilling to recognize the Messiah as king. It's because they're unwilling to recognize him as Lord. And this has been Matthew's point in showing us this brief exchange here between Jesus and the Pharisees and why he then goes and demolishes the Jewish leaders in the next chapter. They're going to hell because they refuse to submit to Jesus as Lord. It's as if Matthew is looking at you, the reader, as you take in this book. And he says, you, dear reader, have been following this guy from the beginning. I've been telling you about him from the beginning. You've seen the miracles of his birth. You've seen the miracles that he performs. And by now, you're willing to recognize that he is divine. But the Pharisees? They're rejecting the salvation that God is truly offering him because they refuse to submit to Jesus as Lord. And there's a massive difference between recognizing a king and submitting to a lord. There are a host of people that are perfectly willing to recognize Jesus as king the same way the British do their monarchy. For many, Jesus becomes the British monarch. He's king in title only. But Lord... Get out of here. He has no real authority over my life. And how do you see that? How does that play out in people's lives? Well, they attend church maybe even every Sunday because Jesus is king after all. But they'll attend with their live-in boyfriend or girlfriend because the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, or do you not know that the, unri- that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They think that that passage doesn't apply to them because Jesus, after all, is king, but he's not Lord. He has no say here. He might be king, and we should go to church. We should recognize there's no salvation but in Jesus alone. But how dare you say that I'm not in the kingdom of God? He's king, but it's not like he's Lord. Or we'll recognize Jesus' kingship in that we'll call ourselves Christians. We'll identify ourselves to even others as Christians. But we'll be content to carry on bitterness towards someone else until the cows come home. We'll ignore what the Lord of heaven actually says about carrying around bitterness in Matthew 6.15 when he says, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, scrub that out from the Bible. Jesus is king, but he's not Lord. I mean, that's unreasonable. How can we be expected to forgive others their trespasses against me? Do you know how heinous they were? More heinous than killing the Son of God. He doesn't have actual authority over my life, surely. We'll claim Christ on the one hand, but we'll carry about our lusts and our anger, ignoring the words in Matthew 5, 22, 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Or 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're content to be called Christians on the one hand, but then we'll carry about marital strife on the other hand. The wife hating the idea of submitting to her husband. The husband hating the idea of dying for his wife in spite of the Lord's words through the, the Apostle Paul in, Matt, in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Or verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We'll call ourselves Christians on the one hand, but then we'll forego or hide how much we actually make in the paying of our taxes, or we'll refuse the wearing of masks. Because they can't tell me what to do. I'm an American. I'm free. As if the Lord doesn't say in Romans 13, 1-2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Ethel, get your coat. He's getting close. It hurts us all. But he's Lord, isn't he? And what are the implications of him being Lord? It means that he has a say over every aspect of your life. Not only a say, complete and total command. There isn't a place over your life which you can put your hands on top of and say, mine. Not one. You don't get that right. You don't get that privilege. You are not your own. He's not merely a king. He's your Lord. And because He's your Lord, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price and therefore you belong to Him. And the Pharisees are rejecting Him here as that. Not Lord. And it's precisely the reason they're condemned to hell. So often as we read the scriptures, I want to jump to Jesus and to the disciples and be like, yeah, get them! But I think we should probably just put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees right now. Can't we just ask the question, aren't we from time to time Pharisees here? Aren't there certain things in our lives where we have said, yeah, but not that? You don't, you don't really have a say here. The Pharisees are condemned because they're hypocrites. They're, that word literally means actors in a play. They're pretending like they are something, but they're really not. They acknowledge God with their mouth, but their hearts are far from Him. That's another way of saying they acknowledge Him as King, but not as Lord. How many of us are trapped in our own hypocrisy? Being a Christian and committing sin, hear me, is not hypocrisy. That's not the hypocrisy. 
That's human. We're all fallen. We're in that condition. Every single one of us is in a place where we commit sin on a regular basis. There's a reason on Sunday morning we stand up here and lead you through a confession of sin, not for your sake alone, for our sake too. We do that because we recognize that we commit sin on a regular basis. And we hope that Sunday morning is not the only time where we do that. But claiming Christ is king and then turning a blind eye to the Scripture's teaching for the rest of your life, that is the height of hypocrisy. Pretending as though those Scriptures don't have anything to say to me. Those that can be shown the text of Scripture and then harden their heart against it and say, that's not talking to me. I'm not willing to do that. Literally showing up on a Sunday with the person that you live with that's not your husband or not your wife and hearing the gospel preached and saying, yeah, get them. And never thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I am trapped in sin. And never coming before the Lord and saying, you know what? I'm a sinner. And that's talking about me. Being trapped in marital strife and saying, you know what, we hate each other, but you know what, divorce, that's the bad thing. Divorce, that's, that's the one. That's the pinata that we should all hit. So long as I can live in my house and not divorce my wife or not divorce my husband, that's fine. That's all God really cares about. That's not true. He wants our marriages to look like a model of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. He's not just king. He's also Lord. And to carve out those exceptions for ourselves, that makes us the hypocrite. But here's what I want you to understand. Christ died for your hypocrisy too. That's the good news of the gospel. We're all, some form or fashion, trapped in hypocrisy from time to time. We all have those exceptions we've carved out of our life. That does not apply to me. Christ died for that too. So the appeal to you, Christian, and to me, is when you hear the word of Scripture, don't harden your heart against it. Don't look for the exceptions and pretend as though that doesn't apply to me. Own it! Every single one of those examples I bring up, step on my toes too. I struggle with every single one of those from time to time. Don't harden your heart against it. Acknowledge it. Don't play the role of a hypocrite. Play the part of those who are mourning over their sin, who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need for Christ. Because remember what he said all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the people that are included in the kingdom of God. The people that are poor in spirit. It doesn't make us more holy to pretend like we don't have these sins and we don't struggle with those. It makes us a hypocrite. Own it. You have nothing to fear. He has sent Christ as your substitute to die on your behalf for all of your hypocrisy. 
for those that have faith, confess your sins. This is how Christians demonstrate that Christ in our lives is not only King, but Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our hearts this morning. Potentially, you have smashed the idols of our own self-righteousness. In my own heart and in others here, I, I pray, Lord, that you would restore those broken pieces with a heart of flesh. Build back anew something that is a heart that we can, that beats for the kingdom of God, that we respond to your word, that we come to you in repentance and, and owning the sins that are in our, our, our lives, not pretending as though these passages don't apply to us, but acknowledging that indeed they do. And then under the auspices of your word, may we line, may we line up all of our lives. Every aspect of our life, may we submit to your lordship over it to the Bible's teaching about what we should be as individual Christians, as members of a family, as members of a church body. May everything from top to bottom be ordered in accordance with your kingdom, in accordance with your word. I pray that for us a turning point is now that we not just acknowledge you as king, but submit wholly to you as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.